Let's see. Okay. Hi. Hi. Omer. Let's see if I can, um, hold on. Speaker, MacBook Pro speakers. Test. I can hear you. Good. I can hear you. Cool. Yeah. How's my sound? You sound great. Is this uh video and audio? I'll use video as well. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. How's thanks. for. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. Where are you at? I like your setup. Thank you. I'm in your I'm in your old neighborhood. My old I, neighborhood. Can okay. do you rec, do you recognize the name? Pacino? Yeah. How'd you know that? How did I know what? Does it say Pacino there? Yeah. I I I, I how did you know that? That's pretty impressive. I read your book. <laughs> but does it say Pacino in the book? It doesn't, but you talk Parkway Mall, you talk, I think, one of the restaurants down the street, and I go, he he used to live here. <laughs> but Kareem, you know what's trippy about that? Tell me. The basement that we lived in was on Pacino. Like, that was the street that it was in. Our bungalow was on Crocus, and then we moved to the basement, as I said in the book, and it was on Pacino Boulevard. It was on Pacino. Like, the, your address was Pacino. Yes. Oh my God. So were you, okay. <laughs> were, how close were you to the school? Terraview Willowfield? Yeah. Seven minute walk, eight minute walk. Okay. So you were. You're, Ellesmere and Warden. Yeah. You're. Oh, so you were on that side. Okay. So no, you, no, we, we, we grew. I, so I was born Scarborough general and then went, we lived in on Crocus drive on Ellesmere yeah. and Warden. Yeah, yeah. I was just there last week, actually, for this piece. You're kidding. And then we moved when I was 12 <laughs> to Pacino Boulevard on his basement. And that's on Pacino and Victoria Park. Yes, yeah. You're on the – yeah. So Pacino Victoria Park is that way. I mean, Victoria Park is that way. Pacino is, like, right in front of me. Um, we're, at, we're literally – I'm at the corner of Pacino and Pharmacy on Pharmacy. Right oh, at that's the, amazing. Right at the bus stop. <laughs> <laughs> but I used to live in this house's basement. <laughs> uh, there it is. Yeah, yeah. So when I so as I was as I was reading as I was reading the book, and I think it's probably somewhere near the beginning. You know, you talk about your your uh, your, your friend. You're you're on your bikes, and then you talk about you know Scar Town, and then you mention one of the restaurants. Uh, or one of the stores, I think. And I go, oh my goodness. And I told my wife, I said, Minaz, he, he, Omar used to live around here somewhere. <laughs> I did, I did. And the restaurant might be the uh, the Hakka Chinese uh, China Cottage. It might have been that one. My favorite. So good. It's changed names and owners now. I just discovered that and I was a little <laughs> disappointed. Yeah, it's not the same. It's the same people that work there, like at the at the... At the restaurant, I don't know about you know in the um, in the kitchen, but um, I don't know. Maybe it's just in my head, but it doesn't taste the same. But um, okay. I will talk about it all the time. But thank you so much, anyways, for my pleasure. For, yeah, for for joining me, um, and congrats on the book. Obviously, thank you, thank you. By, by the way. Um, I want to ask you this question off the top, Omer. Um, why, why did you decide that you wanted to write a memoir? 
Because people wouldn't believe it if it wasn't a memoir. If I had tried to write this in fiction, in story, which I was doing when I was at Yale Law School, I was working on a novel and obviously these essays. But <clears throat> I felt that after Trump was elected, there was such a gap between how your average white person in the West thought of Muslims and brown people and what I thought. I thought the gap was just so wide where they were talking about like banning Muslims in the United States. And I was in New Haven at this point in 2016, whereas I'm talking about Muslims and brown people and immigrants being the best generation, the next generation, the ones who are going to uplift and inspire that come from far places, our parents, grandparents, us. And I thought that gap was so wide that the only thing that I could do is really put my own story on the line. And then they use that story as a vehicle to discuss ideas because when I was writing fiction, yeah. people could say, editors could say, and you have to understand most of the publishing industry is very, very white. So even getting this book out in 10 days is a remarkable accomplishment for me, just in terms of being able to do it with my vision. But I, people wouldn't, many editors wouldn't believe what I was writing when it was fiction. So with the authority and credibility of nonfiction of a memoir for me to say, no, this happened and this happened to me and things like this happened to people like me. Yeah, I don't think anyone could question it. And then I just sort of ran with it and it became a lot harder than I thought it was going to be actually. What was, what was difficult about it? Was it just remembering, you know, well, all the memory that you went that's, through? Or? That's part of it though, because you're, even your memory is subjective, right? Because yeah. like, like after we have this conversation, you're going to have one memory of this. And then maybe like six months later, that memory is overwritten by another memory. And then a year later it's written over. So I was really trying to, you know, drill down in my mind and think about what was the what were the core events that would form into a memoir. And it's not like therapy, right? You're not just like mm. just purging onto the page. You're you're constructing a story, and there has to be ideas in it. And sometimes when I was writing, for me, I go inward. So sometimes I did feel like I hit the vein, you know. And then when I hit the vein and it hurts a little bit, then I feel like I've gotten somewhere. And it's made me uncomfortable. And now the task then is as a writer to translate that onto the page in the best way that I can. And that translation of that, of the feeling and the emotion, that's what I got better at in the process of writing it over five years, wow. right? So being able to translate but both like the emotion and the music of the story. And it's not all pain and frustration and negative emotions. There's obviously moments of joy and laughter and gratitude and love in it as well. So I wanted to make sure it captured all these things. And I did my best job as a writer to translate it and also add something new. I didn't want this to be just a imitation or just like a second rate version of what someone else was going to do. I really wanted it to represent me, my voice, the authors that influenced me and the towns and communities that it influenced me. Yeah. I'm thinking back to, you know, the, and when I talk about memory, maybe I should talk about like like emotions, or you know, you talked about it being therapeutic. Um, how it, it, I'm, I'm imagining it must have been difficult to sort, you know, to remember, you know, back for example, you, you're you're in Paris, you're in the attic, and you just can't leave, you just can't get out get out of bed, um, and it's not just a paragraph that you write. There's there's a few pages that you write. There's a chapter that you write about this. Um, and having to go back and almost show yourself naked to the world that, you know, this is who you, this is who you are and this is what you've experienced. Like how, <clears throat> were there times where you said, ah, maybe I don't need to tell this part of the story or uh, this is not worth it. Did you ever experience thoughts of, of, of that? Of course. Yeah. 
every day there's a lot of doubts and there was there was questions of whether to include things but when i was actually writing it i try to be a pure writer i try to just mm. put what's coming to me as an artist as well onto the page and to translate that and i feel what i'm most suspicious of and worried of and actually a little bit paranoid of is that i'll start self-censoring or adjusting because of mm. other people's perceptions so obviously later on in the writing and the revising process and the editing process, there's time to make changes and think about things and, you know, other things as well to consider. But when it came down to writing, I wanted to be as honest and as raw as possible. And for it to really capture the feeling as well, because the book, the book takes you into this world through my view, right. And you're kind of yeah. seeing things. And for many people, I'll be familiar. And for some people that'll be totally new, but either way, what I wasn't going to do was like BS people. What I wasn't going to mm. do was like, downplay things that might have been worse or exaggerate things or do this i i really tried to hold myself accountable and maintain the artistic integrity of the book itself yeah so sometimes that made me uncomfortable because there might be things in there that i might not want but at the same time my my first duty i saw was to the truth and to readers and to this experience as well uh and and that's kind of what led me so yeah it, it was difficult at times for sure but that difficulty helped serve the process and what I was doing. Cause I think good things are difficult anyways, by definition. Yeah. You, there's a lot of, I'll call them battles. There's a lot of battles in the book, you know, <clears throat> mostly with, with, with yourself, you know, um, and I should, I don't know if that's the right way to phrase it, but you know, you, you talk about, and, and the battles come as you succeed right there's there's like i'll give you an example of, of mine you know uh there there was a time not too long ago where travel was forget it you cream is never going to be able to travel uh, and i've been fortunate enough you know uh to be able to afford to travel recently um and when i find myself in another country i go wow never in a million years would i ever thought i'd be able to you know travel to eastern europe for example um and in your case you know you find yourself in in israel um and and you start the book off in israel um and you know someone who would come from scarborough and, and what you had faced would find themselves in israel going wow who would have thought a kid you know from uh, uh from the suburbs would have made it here and then there's a battle a, a battle of of uh of not being accepted by anybody mm. um and it's interesting how you end the book maybe we'll talk about that as well but why did you want to start the book with with that story? I thought the story was very powerful mm. in the sense that, I mean, it impacted me. I yeah. thought of it a lot and I found new layers. This would happen as well sometimes, like a memory that might like be repressed or dissolved. You find new layers to it and you're like, wow, there's something deeper there. In this case, it was very jarring because obviously I was in Israel without giving too much away, but in the interrogation room. And then there's this conversation, this get to know you session that happens for three or four hours. And that's where the book opens. Yeah. And then it cuts to Al-Aqsa Masjid and being in the Dome of the Rock and then having a almost an altercation there. And the contracts and juxtaposition of these two things of not quite belonging to me, yeah. that summed up the essence of my story and the story that I wanted to tell. Because mm -hmm. you have to remember... Some of the other stories that come up when you're a Muslim kid, a brown kid, you're growing up, you're, if you're born in the West, born in Canada, you're coming up in the culture of your parents, you know, you're learning a yeah. new culture, you're adjusting. So it's almost by definition, no matter what you become, you will not be them. 
So you will have to adjust and be able to exist in different worlds. You know, I still do that. Yeah. Right. Um, so it wasn't like, I, I thought of whether to not open it there, but I thought it was also important because experience was real. It was very unique and I thought it was powerful and important and I wasn't going to shy away from it just because it was in Israel or Jerusalem. You have to also have to remember, I mean, Jerusalem itself is a very important city, but yeah. because all these experiences are true, this is a memoir, a nonfiction book. That means that every experience resonates with a certain authority. I didn't just like invent this thing that happened, you know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's a very, it's, it's, and it doesn't just happen to me either. I mean, you can rest assured almost everything in this book didn't just happen to me that we know people that have faced similar things that we all have. So yeah, it was more just about like that's that experience. I was at Yale law school, was you know, uh, just doing well, like really learning a lot. And I found myself in Jerusalem and in the interrogation room. So I was like, here we are. And <laughs> I had, uh, I actually had Edward Said, the great Palestinian author's book in my bag when I was, uh, in the interrogation room. Oops. To <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. I had two books actually. One was by Edward Said, who was a Palestinian scholar, of course, the author of Orientalism. And the other was by Saul Bellow, who was great okay. Jewish author right, right from Montreal so I, I was reading Bello originally and then once they detained me I put the Bello down and I took out the Edward Said basically <laughs> of course you did <laughs> always looking for a battle of course of course uh, that that's crazy can I say uh, something on, on the battle yeah. point though because yeah the battles are internal, right? That's it's like right. this yeah. thing is happening in life, like a, a new step, a new adjustment has been made yeah. and and you're, you're moving up in life and it's just different. So the internal battle is something that you're constantly, constantly facing and society is making you face it as well. Yeah. So. Are you still, are you still battling? Yes, I would say so. Yeah. Yeah. You're not like you, you there's this, there's a story close to the end. You're, you're in a, I think you're in a cabin and you've got, or you're at home and you have all of your transcripts, your, you know, your graduation certificates and, and all of these um, awards. And you sort of look at them and go, what, what, what the heck's the use of all of these things? Um, you're not going to do the same thing with this book, are you? <laughs> no. I would not do the same thing with this book, but you know, I, I really had to reflect on what was the value of some of these credentials. Yeah. You know, what was the value of them? Obviously I wanted them. I worked hard for them. They're yeah. very, very difficult to get. And, you know, I think like, it, it's kind of difficult for me to explain or even talk about that scene unless people understand what comes before it. So okay. I don't want to touch on that, but I'll just sure, say sure. that like, as we grow older, we need, we, we, I definitely reflect on what was, what was the value of the meritocracy of the credential? I mean, brown yeah. parents off obviously pushing kids towards excellence. In my case, I just felt like I kind of came out of nowhere and just like had this motivation and, and just charged for it. But I'm both proud of the credentials still like to this yeah. day, like I'm still glad about them. And at the same time, I've moved past them entirely. Like they don't, I don't wake up one day and being like, Oh, I went to Yale you know, <laughs> because it's, it was. And by the way, the privilege was always about what do you do with it? Yes. It was never okay. about for me to become like a rich investment banker and corporate lawyer and just disappear and get like a, a nice house. I mean, that was there, but I, I was just driven by something else, maybe because I had nothing to lose, yeah. right? If you're like born super privileged and you have a lot more to lose. So I felt like I had nothing to lose and I really wanted to pursue my own my own thing. And and that was this kind of foreign policy law writing thing. And um, yeah, so. 
so in in your in your in your in your story in your memoir um there it almost is like a switch that goes off and you know we talked about memory a little bit so maybe this memory i've have it switched with another story in your book but you see barack obama hmm. and i i can't remember it's if it's when he gets elected or when he's uh giving a talk at uh, the democratic uh, national convention uh the election before but there's almost like a switch that goes off where you go from just another kid that i might walk by the streets here in scarborough to omer's going to do something with his life and you just start devouring knowledge and reading like crazy was it was it literally a switch that went off for you yeah, I mean, this is another thing where people are like, well, I don't believe that it happened that way. And I'm like, I, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. You know, maybe it is a cliche, but I'm sitting here talking to you right now with the vocabulary that I do, yeah. with the credentials that I do and with the book out, like telling you that that moment changed my life. You know, it's just yeah. like, maybe we get so caught up in in like fake versions of that, that when it actually happens, I mean, the configuration of events was so unique, right? 2007, the U.S. was down in Iraq. We see Bush, Muslim communities always talking about Bush, Iraq, Afghanistan. And then I'm kind of aimless and frankly hopeless and then just see this thing. And it was just like a shock, you know? And look at the power of image and of an idea. The minute that it enters into your brain, when you see that and you think it, and and, and what happened was two things, I think. It It was, first of all, the visual of him. You know, if he was a white guy and he was exactly the same, it wouldn't have gone that far. But because he was Barack Hussein Obama, because he was just in his own lane and a unique figure, all of a sudden the visual triggers an idea, which is that I might be able to do this. That's different than seeing like, you know, I don't know, Bill Clinton with someone with an inspiring story just on the screen as well. Yeah. So and and all of a sudden everything changes. So I am that kid walking down the street in Scarborough. The only thing that's different now is that I've got a flame and a fire burning inside of me. And and that's how it started. And it's still going. I haven't lost it. But that's the thing. I haven't lost it. I'm just as hungry to learn and read today as I was in that moment. And that's phenomenal. I I remember years ago before he was uh, before he came on the before he was a Marvel superhero, speaking with uh, Simu Liu, um, and you know, to e- even bef- even back then when he was just on a CBC show, um, you know, he talked about representation and he goes, it, "It matters. It's important. You know, I want to, you know, get to the highest level so that you know, kids that look like me that don't see people like me on the big screens, you know." see me and then one day go i'm gonna do that too by the way something else about him um yeah it wasn't seeing an entertainer it wasn't seeing like the heroes that we had before were largely entertainers and athletes right kobe bryant vince carter yeah of course and musicians for the most part um people who were basically paid to entertain Sure. And Obama was something different. He was running for president. There's nothing you can say about that. He's like running for president, right? He's there. You see him talking. And he was just so beyond excellent of what we had seen at the, since that point. I mean, who would we seen at that point? Al Gore, George W. Bush, Bob Dole, Bill Clinton. I mean, with all due – Ronald Reagan. I mean, with all due respect to them, for the most part, except for Bill Clinton, most of those dudes were very mediocre. 
And it was because of the, that they were white guys from power that they were able to like, if Reagan was black, this should be like an SNL series. If Reagan was black, because he just, <laughs> they, they just got away with so much flagrantly illegal shit. Okay. I was reading yesterday last night about how they like the Reagan administration was funding the Iranian Ayatollahs. I mean, selling them weapons after the Iranian revolution, right? And yeah. Just things like that. But Obama was embodied excellence. He spoke very well. He'd gone to Harvard Law School. He had a story of being from the outside. And that's what really resonated with me. And of course, like just something about the name Hussein, you know, something about the name. There was just something about the name, you know, there was just something about the name where I was like, damn. First of all, the name is very familiar because Barak in Urdu is Barkat, right? Which is, which is blessing. Yeah. Hussein is a very, very common name among all Muslims. Yeah. Arabs, South Asians, and then Obama just sounded like a, you know, just sound like a unique kind of ethnic name to me. Like those yeah. are, could have been one of my friends' names, right? It wasn't, it was the, the radical familiarity of seeing someone who looked like me, but he was on TV on CNN talking about running for president. I think that just like made the sparks of my brain go off. So. That's just amazing. Um, there's so many stories I, I would love to talk to you about, but, you know, I'm going to, you know, recognize what, what time it is. So a couple of quick questions. Sure. Um, you know, Brown Boy is your first book. Yeah. What's your next book? My next book is what I'm working on right now. Okay. Um, are you going to Google it? It's, you're not going to find anything. I'm not Googling. No, no. I'm, I'm okay. Just, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> no, my next book I'm working on is a historical project on the rise, the re-rise rather of fascism in the West. So it's a very different book than Brown Boy. Um, I almost, again, don't want to talk about it too much, yeah, but yeah. it is going to be a pretty comprehensive historical literary work that's going to be pretty fast paced. And I think we'll both start a lot of conversations as well as just end some conversations as well. That's amazing. Um, there's a there's a scene in your book um, where I th- I think it's during the pandemic, and you're 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 maybe it's not, but you're in a bookstore and you and you constantly go to this one bookstore, and maybe mm. it's in Paris. Maybe I'm getting my it's in Paris, into. a Shakespeare and Company. Yes, yes, and you go there and you feel yes, this is right after um, this episode that we talked about earlier from the attic. Um, and you go there and you feel comfort there. Um, and so I want to ask you, because I've never thought of a bookstore that way, the way you described it. I've only seen that sort of bookstore in movies. Um, what's your favorite bookstore? Is that your favorite bookstore? I feel like I would get, I would be tough for me to answer this. And I would also get in trouble because I don't want to pick one bookstore over the other, but I'll, I'll give you some of my favorites. I like Shakespeare and company. Yeah. Obviously type books and queen. I mean, in Toronto, we, we need in Toronto needs a better independent bookstore game, but yeah, for economic reasons, but uh, McNally Jackson in New York and the strand, uh, obviously Porter square books, Harvard, Harvard uh, bookstore, the coop. But I want to say for me, when I was growing up, like, when I after I had my enlightenment moment, the bookstore was really both a safe space, a training ground, a place where I mean, you think of what it is. It's just like the best books around you, you know, and they're fresh, and you can like take anything off. Um, actually, my favorite bookstore. I do have an answer for you. Okay, it no longer exists anymore. Oh no, it was the chapters uh, in Mississauga, oh, Ontario. Wow. On what was it on? It was on Rathburn. 
and it was like right. It, it, it was right by where Sport Check is now, across the street from Square One. And then okay. they moved it into into Square One as an Indigo because our family's out there right now. That's where we live, right? Okay. But um, yeah, so that place closed down. I spent a lot of time there. I used to browse the bookstore. They used to have a twenty four hour Starbucks, and I just missed some of those days mm. where I was just younger and learning a lot, walking through the bookstore and imagining, like again, like well, maybe one day I'll write something. Like maybe, maybe. But for now, I'm just so happy to be here and to learn that's amazing and now i'm talking to you with this guy coming out you know (laughs) in 10 days so we're coming around full circle and and here we are you know it's gonna be exciting we'll see what happens i'm really proud of it 10 days and that's it it, it's a great book i really i really enjoyed reading it um what's what's what are you reading right now omar well, that's a good question. I'm reading a couple books. I'm reading this great book by Eric Foner called Reconstruction, which is about how I'm actually, you're finding me in Savannah, Georgia, by the way. Like I'm in the deep south of the United States. Okay. I came out here for some, for some sun and some research, but <laughs> nice. re- <laughs> I wanted to make sure my color matched my. <laughs> <laughs> that's a joke that I can make between us. Omar, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Course, I get it. <laughs> um, no, I'm reading Reconstruction right now by Eric Foner. Uh, okay. It's a great book on just how what happened after the Civil War and why the hope uh, of rebuilding the South and freeing Black people failed at the time. I'm reading a shred this great book on Juneteenth by uh, at oh. Professor Annette Gordon Reed on the history of Juneteenth in Texas. I learned a lot about that, and I am I also got Mehdi Hassan's book on deck, winning every argument. Mehdi Hassan just put out a book. But a lot of my reading right now, to tell you the truth, is very tailored towards my project on fascism. So I've been reading a lot about Nazi Germany, Confederate States of America, Italian fascism. You know, light reading that most people <laughs> want to do before bed, right? Like Jeez. that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I mean, yeah, I'm drawn to those subjects. So I'm excited about that. It's, it's a lot like a learning about human psychology and culture and society, you know, yeah. and also recognizing a lot of this stuff wasn't that long ago like they were calling muslims and people of color backwards or whatever uh undeveloped but yeah only 90 years ago like these fascist dictators were running wild everywhere right so really trying to understand that i guess like the darker parts of our past that for a long time white people all white people actually like it was only white people who wrote the history and they kept suppressed for a long time but it's not like i'm not trying to accuse anybody of anything today i think when we talk about race sometimes people can be made to feel uncomfortable which perhaps sometimes they should but this second what i'm researching is really about bringing the facts to light and bringing it all together yeah so well you listen i i I don't want to end it off here but you just triggered something i'm gonna I guess ask your permission. I I think it's in your book or maybe on your blog, where you talk about racism isn't just a feeling. You talk you, you, and it was fascinating. This one paragraph that you wrote where you talk about what happens to your body, and yeah. that people <clears throat> who face racism actually die earlier. Yeah, I mean, that's just and, and so my my question to you is, I want to type that out and throw it on my Instagram because that I found it. Oh my God, this is yeah. You know, it's true. Yeah, I would appreciate that because that's not that well known because we think of racism as hurt feelings. Right. But a lot of the research shows that when you continually face slights and racially based because you can't change anything about that. When you continually face that and you face heightened levels of cortisol and stress, your cells begin to age faster as a response. So, in fact, 
people who are often um, very gifted from from underserved communities end up having worse health outcomes than people who just stayed in the community, right? And why is that? Because they've had to exert an enormous oh, amount of effort wow. at a cellular level, at a stress level to overcompensate for the ideologies of white supremacy and racism. And that actually depletes the, even the more privilege they get. People like me, we can go to Harvard, Yale, we can do all this thing, but our cells age faster, frankly, and it has negative impact on health outcomes, which if you're already brown or black, the health outcomes are already yeah. worse. The treatment in hospitals is already worse. So I, I would I would appreciate that, Kareem, because yeah. I think as much as we talk about race like and racism, let's get down into the material, actual consequences mm. of people, you know, in their body and in their societies. So, yeah. Omar, listen, I wish you the best of health. Thank you. Um, Same. And thank you. And listen, congrats uh, on on the book. Uh, amazing. And um, the book is Brown Boy, a memoir by Omar Aziz. Uh, published by our friends at Scribner. And it's available April 4th in your favorite bookstore. Uh, go walk into your local bookstore, pick one up, uh, and you'll also be able to find it online as well, wherever books are sold. Uh, Omar, thank you so much for your time. Listen, next thank time you're in, next time you're in, the, in your old neighborhood, uh, drop, drop me a line on, on Instagram. Maybe we'll go to the old, uh, old China Cottage. I would love to. I would love to. And the Karachi Bazaar. Yes, that's the name. That's that's the place you mentioned in your book, I believe. Karachi that's right. Bazaar. That's right. <laughs> that's in your book. The By the way, the new Karachi Bazaar is closed. The old Karachi Bazaar now has a for rent sign on. It's an end of an era, unfortunately. Yeah. But maybe I will one day open a Karachi Bazaar in Scarborough. Go. And maybe that's what this will amount to. Thank <laughs> you so much. Kareem. I really appreciate it. April 4th, Brown Boy comes out. And uh, yeah, yeah. I really hope your listeners, you know, you read it, buy it. I think it's for, it was written for us and for our people. So yeah, let's get it. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank you. Have the amazing weekend. Cheers. You too. Bye. Bye now.